which intervention is most effective to which type of um, condition, how do you measure that, how do you track that. And in terms of outcome, it needs to be a holistic view of symptoms, quality of life, in, um, um, employment, um, social determinants of health related topics. And and so we're in that process. We're in the early innings, I think, as an industry, and we're into that process. And I would claim that if you want to find answers to most of these questions, you'll find them in the conversations. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. What is the best antidote for behavioral health? How do we measure progress on our intangible roadblocks of our emotional, psychological, and social well-being? My guest today is Elon Jaffe, co-founder and CEO of Elios Health. They aim to empower providers by providing them a clinical summarization of behavioral care sessions. Using natural language understanding, NLU technology, Elias Health enables clinicians to gain a deeper understanding of the underlying behavioral obstacles faced by their patients. In today's episode, we discuss the importance of value-based healthcare and the effective interventions for enhancing behavioral health. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Alan. Thanks for joining me today. Of course. Thanks for uh, having me, Christine. Yeah, so uh, so you're based in New York City now? No, I'm actually based outside of Boston. Oh, you're based outside of Boston. Okay, cool. Um, but the company itself is based in outside Boston, too. The com- yeah, the company is based outside of Boston, plus in Tel Aviv in Israel. Mm-hmm. So we have um, kind of our R&D product, in, in Israel, and then we have our go-to-market in uh, in Boston. And yeah. I do a lot of back and forth between the two. That's fun. Uh, which makes me uh, come to my first question that I always like to start with. Uh, your, a bit of your personal journey. You, uh, you were, you're from uh, Israel. And so tell us yeah. about your journey, how to, what takes you to where you are today? Yeah, of course. Um, so I don't know if you know this, Christine, but in Israel, um, once you hit 18, you need to go to do mandatory military service. Um, I was fortunate enough to do that in a combat search and rescue unit in the Air Force, um, which was an amazing five years. I mean, I, I did some really interesting work and actually had a chance to literally save people's life, which, which is always very re- rewarding on itself. Um one derivative of that was that I have um, friends dealing with PTSD from that time. And uh, I've seen them firsthand how they challenged with, with that, how they had access to care, but most of them did not improve through treatment. And that's what led me into behavioral health. I've seen firsthand, you know, people who are very close to me who are being challenged with men be able health condition. And me and my other two co-founders, we, we wanted to make an impact in the space. For mm-hmm. the two other co-founders, uh, we have another Alon and then Dor, so three Israeli, difficult Israeli names. But for the two other co-founders, um, 
they also have friends and family members dealing with behavioral health conditions. So, you know, it's a, it's a very personal mission for us. Um, and we have a very clear why in terms of why we wake up in the morning and, and kind of do what we do. So that what really led me and my um, co-founders to start Elios. Mm-hmm. Well, I did not realize that the military service in Israel is five years. That seems really long. Or you just extend it yourself. It's the mandatory is three years, um, and I did some extra time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can uh, help us understand a little bit about the whole PTSD, being in the military, and versus people who are regular people, they can also experience PTSD. And what are I know you're not a physician, but being in the field, probably you can share us a little bit uh, about what that means. Yes, of course. So, first of all, I would highlight that I'm not a clinician, I'm not a physician, and, and everything I'm sharing is based on my personal experience. But the nature of, of the unit I served in is one that you do encounter a lot of trauma-related um, injuries um, in, under combat scenarios. So, there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of difficult scenarios and and scenes that you kind of find yourself in. There's a lot of pressure. Everything is always time pressured. Um, and that creates a lot of overall stress that I think can can build into something like PTSD. Um, again, I'm not a clinician, so I can't really diagnose why that exactly happens. But it's, um, I would say it's not uncommon uh, for people who serve for you know three to five years under these type of circumstances circumstances to find themselves or their friends dealing with um some level of ptsd um so um so that's that's my experience mm-hmm. i would say um i i don't think i'm well positioned to say if it's different than you know what other people can come into in terms of ptsd in their day-to-day but that's really what triggers the interest for me to to make an impact in the space and really start on I think the first question we asked ourselves is why treatment doesn't work for some people in behavioral health and what are the success percentage and how do you measure that and how do you really quantify quality in in behavioral health um, you know maybe it relates to other topic we'll get into but a lot of like there's a, a lot of people talking about value-based care and value-based care in behavioral health um, I always ask the question, how do you define value in behavioral health? What do you actually measure? Um, what do you actually quantify? Um, so that's, you know, a separate question, but but it all ties together. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought it was interesting because you're studying this whole company when you're in Israel and sometimes yeah. being in the U.S. and the Israel, I think the healthcare system is so different. <laughs> and... Um, and then, of course, on top of that, the behavioral health is also another thing that make it also more complicated. What are the surprising things that you thought you knew, but turned out to be so wrong about the U.S. healthcare system from the angles of somebody who who is not from the U.S.? Yeah, it's a good question. I think we were fortunate to have um, one of the co-founders based in the U.S. when we started. Uh, George graduated from um, Sloan from MIT, 
uh, just when we started. So we, I think we had some kind of early understanding of the US healthcare system. But yeah, to your point, Christine, it's very, very different. Um, for those of you who don't uh, know the Israeli healthcare system, you can think about it more as like a single payer system, um, which is more value-based oriented in a way. Uh, and I think what surprised a lot of people when I mentioned that is Israel have um, electronic medical records probably since the 70s or the 80s for most of the population. And, and there are only like four or five large HMOs that all the population are kind of supported by them. So you have a very good infrastructure to do a lot of things data related. And when we look at the U.S., um, obviously it's very different, right? Um, very fragmented, a lot of different payment mechanisms, a lot of different providers. And I think what, what really kind of surprised us is how early we're still on the value-based care journey um, in the U.S. Um, you know, if you look at the Medicare savings and when you divide that by the total expenditure that Medicare has, it's, I mean, I hope I'm not wrong here, but it's probably less than 2 or 3%. Um, so that was something that was, I think, was surprising for us. Um, and also the fragmentation of the medical records. Um, I still see people, health providers who are using um, folders and pen and papers for medical records. People Health Weathers is also not part of the High Tech Act, so it was kind of late to the late to the EMR game in a way. Um, but now I would say most of the providers are are on a digital EMR. So I think those two areas were surprising to us. Um, one good thing probably that we did is off the bat we decided, okay, if we're interviewing end users and clinicians, we are only interviewing clinicians who are in the in the states. Um, so we won't create any biases or kind of misconceptions for us in terms of what's going on in Israel, what's going on in the states. Um, and I think it served us down the road. And so, um, like I every system there's its pro and its con. And now that you you understand the U.S. health system and you have experienced the Israeli health system, what are the what are the pro and the con besides the electronic medical record? But now in the U.S., there's, you know, everybody's going that direction, I think, because of a lot of the Affordable Care Act kind of make everybody go that way. Yeah, I, th- I think, first of all, the it's not necessarily pros and cons, just very, very different. Um, again, in Israel, it's, it's more of a single-payer system where um, you're you're in your HMO probably from the minute you were born until the, until the day you were die. Um, I think most of the people in Israel do not switch HMOs. And what is, you know, kind of a good in, in the U.S. healthcare system sometimes is you have a lot of competition, you have a lot of different providers in a lot of different areas and a lot of different specialties. If you look at the top, you know, hospitals in the world, they're probably in the U.S., um, so the level of care is, is extraordinary. And if you are lucky enough to live in a place where there is supply of different providers, then you can probably find a really, really good provider and, and, and go to the best doctor in the world, um, mm-hmm. for, for what you need. 
Um, you don't always see that in Israel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think telehealth um, usage is huge in the U.S., uh, especially after COVID. In behavioral health, we've seen spikes from, you know, single digit to high double digit and stay at high double digit, I think probably around 50 to 60%. Um, it's in a way the, the quote unquote killer feature for telehealth is behavioral health because it's, it's so suitable for that. Um, and still in Israel, you don't see a lot of telehealth. It's, it is, it is up and coming and, and you do see, um, more utilization, but because the country is also so small, um, <laughs> Most of the time, you can just drive, and it's it's not that far away. Um, and for those who listen, who are not fully familiar with Israel, um, it's probably the size of New Jersey, mm-hmm. just to give some context. Um, so those are some of the kind of differences that I think we're seeing. Mm-hmm. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So help us understand about you mentioned the reason that you start this Ilios Health, one of the things because you've seen a lot of friends and families of who have experienced behavioral uh, mental health. Um, what was not working that that you think that Ilios Health can ad- help address? I think the number one challenge, if you ask any leader in a behavioral health, a community behavioral health organization. You ask them, what's your number one challenge? And they will tell you workforce. I think there is a staggering gap between demand and supply in behavioral health. Um, The recent numbers are that by 2025, we need 4.5 million behavioral health clinicians just to close that gap. I can, you know, probably speak to to my generation, which is um, consumes more behavioral health services than ever before. COVID obviously was a big um, push towards that, but we just don't have enough clinicians. And the fact that we don't have enough clinicians put a lot of pressure on the existing ones. And in behavioral health, also when you think about it, Christine, it's the most lengthier conversation in healthcare, 45 Mm -hmm. to 60 minutes. So when you take those 6,000 words that you typically exchange in a 45 to 60 minute session and you need to distill it down to documentation, to a progress note, which has something like 300 words, the the mental barrier, the burden is one of the highest across healthcare. So I think workforce gap led itself to um, burden and burnout for clinicians. And that led also to a quality of care challenge because in behavioral health, it's, it's more challenging to quantify um, what is the level of care that was provided and, and what are the outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so what we are here to solve is first that burden. We reduce documentation down by 50%. We reduce um, a lot of clawbacks and audits and compliance issues that providers need to deal with. 
Um, and on the quality side, we improve the usage of evidence-based care by 35%. We improve outcomes by 3 to 4x. And it all comes down to the core thesis, which is in behavioral health, the conversation is the treatment. And you don't see that in other areas in healthcare where you literally treat someone by talking to them. Mm-hmm. And that is our is the core thesis that Elias is built upon is this is the most important data point in, in behavioral health. It's the unstructured data. It's not the structured data. And in many other specialties in healthcare, structured data is more important than unstructured. But in behavioral health, it's not so, not so much. So how can you take this unstructured data, which is the conversation, and leverage that to provide documentation, to provide compliance, to provide quality of care, to do a lot of different things from a single source of data? Um, those are the main challenges that we solve to our providers. Um, today, we're deployed with close to 50 provider organizations across the country serving thousands of clinicians. And, and the best what I, I love from one of the clinicians who is using Elias is he told me, um, Elias cut down my pajama time. So I don't need to do documentation um, during evening and during the weekends. And and when clinicians are when clinicians can focus more on care and less on ops, less on operations, that's I think when consumers benefit from from it too. Walk us through uh, before they use your technology. If I were a uh, um, provider, mental health provider, I see a patient and I talk to the patient for forty five minutes, and I'm supposed to document that conversation with my diagnosis and analysis. Yeah. So. Typically, it will take you 15 to 20 minutes to document that 45-minute session. And with Elias, what you do is you talk to your um, patient, whether it's via telehealth, whether it's in person, groups, one-on-one. And the minute you finish the session, 30 seconds after that, you get your note ready for you in your EHR. And it's not dictation. It's not transcription. It's clinical summarization. Mm-hmm. And it's tailored to the specific session and the specific client with the specific diagnosis in this specific context. In addition, what you also get is what I like to think of as the equivalent of an MRI or an X-ray scan for that session. What did you talk about? Which type of intervention you use? What's working? What's not working? What are the best practices? Are you following those best practices? Uh, more of a in a way, decision support system that, that doesn't tell you what to do. It, of course, doesn't replace you, but it gives you a data layer on which you can make clinical decisions. Mm-hmm. Just like an x-ray doesn't tell the physician what to do, but it gives you data from which you can derive clinical decisions. So the provider used your system inputting certain information, and then this, your technology spit out a report or analysis. How do they save them? I guess what I'm trying to ask, like, how do they save the time on documentation? Yeah, of course. So the clinician prov- conduct their session. They don't change anything in their workflow. They, they go into their EHR. Elias is not a standalone solution. I think it's something that's important to highlight. It's embedded on top of the EHR. So they log into their EHR, and instead of them typing the notes from scratch, the note is already waiting for them. And they need to just edit it and add some small things. Typically, we see that we provide 
70% of the completed note mm-hmm. for the clinician, which yields in 50% reduction in documentation time. But how so do imagine, your system knows what the conversation was between so we, the doctor and the patient? We run in the background of that conversation. Mm. We run in the background of that conversation. Um, we have two functionalities. One is like a scribe, meaning we don't save the recording. There is no recording, actually. We, we analyze and delete that in real time. Um, and then another functionality is, um, and it's more for supervision, where you actually can go back and see the session and, and hear the recording. Um, but we run the background, whether it's in person, whether it's via telehealth. Imagine, Christine, that you're a clinician and, and you're doing, you know, five group sessions per day. Each group has 10 participants. You need to do 50 notes within 24 hours. Mm. Right? So... I haven't met a single clinician who liked that or that went to, you know, school to study how to be a clinician in order to document. And I think once you finish your group session and you get everything written for you, just you need to review it and maybe tweak it a little bit, that, that's a huge time saver for them. So the documentation, besides for the compliance, addressing the compliance part, is that the the clinician, when you're saying the treatment is by talking, and so they look at the notes in order for them to talk differently next time they see the patient? So documentation behavioral health has two main purposes, maybe three. One is you need it for billing, right? Two is from a compliance perspective you need it. And three is in terms of con- the continuity of care, and and just remembering what happened in that session. So imagine you see tens of people a week, and when you meet with me next, you know, you as a clinician, you've seen so many people, it's sometimes challenged to specifically remember what, what we talked about. And I'll give you an example. We have a clinician in, in um, Ohio who shared with us that she was providing care to this um, to this consumer and at some point, she saw on Elias that grief as a topic, as a subject, was coming up a lot. And she she couldn't remember that that consumer lost someone or dealt with anything that related to grief. And then she saw that, and she asked the consumer about that. And she said, yeah, we you know we talked about it. I lost this family member, et cetera. And because of that, she looked in grief counseling to her treatment plan. And to me, that's, I mean, that's that's. That's the core of what we're doing, right? That's very directly improving patient care by providing data to the clinician from the conversations and distill it for them. So next time when you see your your client, they actually, when they log into their EHR and kind of preparing for that session, they can see all the summary that we provide them. And in 30 seconds, they're ready to go. And so do you think, um, you know, it does save a lot of time. And I think oftentimes with uh, the behavioral therapist, I think culture is always hard to do translation, I think. And that make it harder to outsource because I think you see the radiologist, you can have uh, radiology uh, result being uh, analyzed by a doctor somewhere in a different country. And I think with when you're saying with the talking is the therapy. Yeah. It, it, that's why it's so hard to address a lot of the labor shortage. Yeah. And also when you think about training and supervision, right? I mean, to your example, if you're a geologist and you 
want to get a second opinion, you can share that scan and get a second opinion. How do you get a second opinion or even just, you know, how does your supervisor knows exactly what happened in that session? I think there is a research that says that clinician on average managed to write in their notebook something like 1% to 2% of really what, what was said in the conversation, right? So what is your data layer? What is What is actually the data that you use in order to share that with your supervisor? Let's take it a step forward. How do you share that with an integrative care team, with the primary care of that patient, with the psychiatry, with the social worker, with the case manager? Why there is a big movement towards integrated care, primary, primary and behavioral health? Well, guess what? Um, you, there is no data that you can truly share um, that gives all the context. Mm-hmm. And the notes are great, but they are lacking. It's 4% of what actually happened in the conversation. And of course, no one has time to go back and listen to 60-minute sessions. But I think the question is, how, how can you distill that session into something like an MRI or CT scan that, that is accurate, adequate, and, and have enough coverage to provide that clinical context to other members of the mm-hmm. care team. And I think it's also, I don't know, I'm not very, uh, I'm just thinking about many of these things are very subjective to a point on how you write it, what is being written, exactly. how it's being written. And I don't know how the, for the reimbursement part is, is like the coding part. And I think the coding has to be supported by the documentation. And then of course, in a way, so, somebody who is a better writer can have a better reimbursement. And I'll give you a a concrete example. We're working with a provider in Illinois that employ um, case managers who are doing community outreach. So they help um, patients with daily living skills and and other needs. Um, Those case managers are, you know, typically not a clinical psychologist or a master social workers, and sometimes they need more support in how to accurately describe the service that they provide just because they, they don't know. Um, so we um, help them using structured formats to actually generate the language for them, and then they just need to review it, edit, change, but you give them a baseline to start from, Right. And I think that's that's the point here is you, we're not here to replace clinicians, but we hear, but but we truly believe that you can augment clinicians with data that will just make their life so much easier mm-hmm. um, and help them to focus more on just providing care to to those um, in need. And how, when you have a physical uh, health issue, for example, you break your 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 legs and you do the MRI, there's a crack. And you fix it, there's no more crack. But when it comes to behavioral health, it's really hard to quantify. And as a patient, how do I know I'm not getting better? Is because I am not getting better? Is it because my therapist is not good? And how is your technology can help me to understand that I'm not feeling better because it's not my time to feel better yet or just because I have not been getting good treatment? Great question. Uh, I think it's one of the more challenging questions in behavioral health, generally speaking. I would start by saying that there are general 
patient reported outcomes that are the standards in the industry. For example, PHQ9 for depression, GAD7 for anxiety. Those are questionnaires that the patient fill out and give you a score, and that score goes on a scale and tell you what's the level of depression, anxiety, etc. for that patient. And, and you want to see that the symptoms reduce um, across 12 to 15 encounters. But that's a part of the picture. Another part of the picture is, you know, for example, if someone um, is unemployed and they found a job, is that a success? If someone, um, if you don't see improvement in their symptoms, but their um, life is just improved because they go out of their home and they meet people and they socialize, is that an improvement in their quality of care? And and that's the, the and that's the complicated question around behavioral health, and and goes back to what I asked initially: is what is in value-based care and behavioral health? What is the value? How do you define that? And um, I think the industry is moving from, um, you know, if you look at the Donabidian model, thinking about quality of care from structure, process, and outcomes, then structure is is probably where we are in behavioral health. We're just talking about access and clinicians, and just be open up for business. Um, but I would claim that we need to move towards process and outcomes as, as a big focus. And when you look at processes, do we really provide evidence-based care? Which intervention is most effective to which type of um, condition? How do you measure that? How do you track that? And in terms of outcome, it needs to be a holistic view of symptoms, quality of life, in, um, um, employment, um, social determinants of health-related topics. And and so we're in that process. We're in the early innings, I think, as an industry moving to that process. And I would claim that if you want to find answers to most of these questions, you'll find them in the conversations. So at the same, so your technology is not using somebody to eavesdrop. It's the technology to uh, be part of the conversation and come up with the report and make that report available for the clinician to edit to be more uh, accurate or just to make sure that it's accurate and then to make that available for them when they see their patient next and also be there when there's somebody's finally go complain about their treatment. Um, if someone is filing complaint about their, about their treatment, then there is typically standard protocols for every organization in terms of how do they retain the data, what data is discoverable, etc. Um, so it, it's the, the data we provide is not part of the medical record per se. What's part of the medical record is only the final note. Um, and if, if it's based on the policy of each organization, um, you know, they can share some of this information, they cannot. You know, I would I would look at the flip side of this, of using technology like like Elios. Um, we see a lot from clinicians who they actually practically share their screen with their members, with their consumers, to show them, hey, Alon, this is what you talked about in the last first encounters. Look at how this is trending down. Look at how this topic is coming up. Look at the homework that I was done to you last time. So now the session is collaborative. Mm-hmm. And now the patient can actually, I mean, 
I can speak for myself when, when, you know, a lot of people that I know are, are going to therapy, we ask ourselves, how do I know if I'm getting better? And now I can actually see data that at least tells me, what am I talking about? Is it helpful? Which type of intervention am I getting? Like, what are the next steps that, that happened? Um, and that, and that gives you some, um, some mode of collaboration, I think that is more deep than uh, what we have today. And I wonder if that is also helping the patient's uh, well-being as well when you see yeah. that what they're doing actually result in something. Exactly. The feedback, I guess, I think as a human, have, getting feedback is uh, helpful uh, of course. on what we do. I can ask you a lot more questions about all this behavioral help, but I just uh, I want to touch on a couple things about your experience as an entrepreneur and running the company. Uh, what were your major uh, obstacles that when you started Ilios Health that you think this is going to be the, the hardest things <laughs> and that I'm sure, I'm sure that you overcome that and then what are the things that turn out to be the, the the obstacle, because I think sometimes when you think about it, that turn out not to be the obstacle, right? Yeah, yeah. When we started the company, our very first assumption was no one would be willing to share, you know, recording of sessions or PHI with us. Right? It's just not. It's just not going to happen. And our core thesis was: if we really want to improve care, the data is there. Like that's that's the. Again, the, the conversation is the treatment. We need to get there. And that was our first obstacle. We said, okay, I, we don't know how we're going to solve it. And what we found out is um, that both clinicians and, and consumers are, you know, given the, the right, of course, security and compliance, but and also given the right exchange of value, are actually willing to do that. And if I'm as a, as a clinician, um, you know, can provide better care and can save a lot of my time. And if I'm as a consumer can actually get better care and understand what's going on in my treatment, then hell yeah, I'll, I'll do that. So that's something that was really non-trivial for us when we started um, and, and kind of be learning through the process. Maybe another example is just, you know, us coming into a new country, a new market, and trying to deeply understand how should we navigate this? Where should we start? Um, and luckily, we had some amazing friends and advisors that help us. I think every entrepreneur needs tremendous amount of help, um, especially if you're building a, um, a healthcare company. You need tremendous amount of help. There's a lot of complex systems that you need to navigate through. And, and we were surprised by the amount of help and support people are willing to provide in this ecosystem for people who, you know, are coming from the right motives, want to make an impact, care about what they do. Well, I think once people on the other side sense that and feel that, they will help you. Yeah, well, which is good. I think uh, I hear a lot of that, how supportive many people are when you're trying to solve healthcare. I think... One of these days, we might be the patient. So I think it's always good to try to, <laughs> we all win when you win. Um, last final uh, thought is that, you know, those are the few uh, couple things that you mentioned, but what are the lessons learned that you can share with a first-time entrepreneurs that is 
it stays with you when you hit the heart. You know, I'm sure doing going to Elias, there's ups and downs. And when it's down, what do you tell yourself to bring yourself up? The first thing I do is I call my co-founders. Like that's, that's I think, the, the, the founding team, the core team that you start this journey with. You know, just be very, very thoughtful of the partners that, that you want to work with because who knows, maybe it can be a 10-year thing, maybe it can be a 20-year thing, and, and it's, it's a long journey. It's a long marathon that is built off of millions and millions of sprints. Um, and, and you need that support system. I think, generally speaking, you need a support system, whether it's family, whether it's your partner, whether it's friends. I always try to, you know, vent out and, and share what I'm kind of going through. And, and both the, the ups and downs, to your point, Christine, there's always ups and downs. And sometimes those ups and downs are in a matter of minutes. Um, and sometimes they're a matter of days. But it's really important for you to have a support system that, that you can lean on and, and kind of share, just, just share with other people what's going on. Uh, because you see your co-founders every day, and I just talked about how how important they are. But you also need other people uh, that that can support you uh, in that long, long journey. I hope that's helpful for anyone who's listening. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. No, that's this is good. So, your co-founders were they your somebody that you knew before, your friends, or you just happened to try to solve this problem together? Uh, no, the, um, both Ron and Lon, I knew them from um, from university. We started together. Ron um, know beforehand from the Air Force, and Ron knows a lot from other kind of uh, prior experience. So each one of us knew one of the other people uh, beforehand, and then we actually started uh, to work together during uh, our undergrads. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, thank you for sharing that story and thank you for uh, the work that you do. And I have a few more questions. Um, you know, I wish I get time to ask you uh, with all the whole AI things. I think that'll be a really interesting time in our life. So, but anyway, um, we'll have another conversation to follow. Well, thank you. Of course. Thank you, Christine. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.